0: and you're listening to University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast.
1: I began this essay contemplating the oath I swore as a Marine to support and defend the Constitution. At the time I took the oath, it felt like a special and precious burden I was taking on, sworn to defend not simply the physical security of my homeland, but to defend something broader, our founding document, and thus the set of ideals embedded within it. Years later, Looking through the section in the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service's Citizens' Almanac on citizens' responsibilities, I was embarrassed to realize my obligations as a Marine were not so unique. The very first responsibility listed is, quote, to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So I had already owed that to my country, by virtue of my birth and the privilege of being American. The divide between the civilian and the service member, then, need not feel so wide. Perhaps the way forward is merely through living up to those ideals, through action and a greater commitment by the citizenry to the institutions of American civic life that so many veterans are working to rebuild. The exact nature of those additional duties will depend on the individual's principles. What is undeniable, though, is that there is always a way to serve, to help bend the power and potential of the United States toward the good.
2: Hello and welcome back to Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I'm Thomas Krasnation.
0: And I'm Nick Pareso. We're excited to bring you an interview we did with National Book Award winning author, Phil Cly. After graduating from Dartmouth College in 2005, Phil joined the Marine Corps as a public affairs officer. He deployed to Iraq from 2007 to 2008 leading a team of journalists, photographers, and videographers who helped tell the story of that war. Upon his return, Phil started writing short stories and essays about his war experience, eventually earning widespread acclaim for his writing.
2: In 2014, Phil won the National Book Award for his collection of short stories, Redeployment, which the New York Times Book Review called The Best Thing Written So Far on What the War Did to People's Souls. He has also written essays on the military and society for the Atlantic and the Brookings Institution, as well as reviews for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Newsweek.
0: Phil, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time.
2: Oh, great to be on. So we know that you went to Dartmouth and then immediately signed up to become a Marine Corps public affairs officer. We were wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led you to that decision.
1: Sure. Um, it was... Uh... Uh, it was not something that I think anybody would have expected. I wasn't like a kid who was really into the military growing up, but I was very much into foreign policy. My maternal grandfather had been a career foreign service officer. He you know, served all over the world. Uh, he was ambassador to Czechoslovakia and Norway uh, in the 1970s. Actually, my, my aunts have all these stories about growing up. Um, and, you know, spending time when he was ambassador to Czechoslovakia. And of course, they're surrounded by spies all the time because he was the American ambassador. Um, and uh, my, uh, you know, one of my aunts once took like a day trip outside of Prague and then kept getting on the wrong train going home. And eventually, some guy just came out of the crowd and in perfect English, said to her, you get on this train, then this train, and it takes you home. And it was like, the Czech spy who is tasked with trailing this like teenage girl who's just like, I'm never getting home to my family because she doesn't know how to use the trains here. <laughs> uh, I'm breaking my cover. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, so I was always fascinated with that. Always, um, you know, if, if you'd asked me as a, as a teenager, what I was going to do, I would have told you I was going to go into the foreign service. And, um, and, you know, my, my dad was in the Peace Corps. My mom worked in uh, international uh, medical aid uh, for many years. So a kind of general notion of, of public service was really important within within the family. Uh, I'm also one of five boys, which may have contributed to it because, uh, you know, life was kind of constant warfare, at least until about the age of 11. Um, and then I went to college. uh 9-11 happened right before I started at Dartmouth. I was actually hiking in the, on the Appalachian Trail during 9-11. So my experience was very different than I think most Americans. I wasn't, you know, glued to the TV, wondering what's going to happen, seeing these images over and over again. Uh, I was just kind of out in the woods. And then, you know, we'd meet people and they'd say that something crazy had happened in New York. And, um... And at first, we thought that they were telling us a ridiculous story of the sort that you tell people when they're out on the Appalachian Trail, removed from, you know, uh, humanity. But yeah, so then, you know, went to college, we were a nation at war. And it seemed like if I was going to serve my country, that might be the best way to do it. My one of my older brothers uh, had joined the Marine Corps. uh, And so that kind of also put into my mind as something that I might do. And you know, this was the huge undertaking that our, our nation was engaged in, first Afghanistan, and then very soon after that, Iraq. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to put my shoulders to the wheel
0: somehow. So you became a public affairs officer and you deployed. What surprised you most about deploying? Um,
1: I, you know, not, not a ton surprised me, right? Um, it wasn't... I mean, it's a job, right? So, um, it was...
2: Talk about kind of your deployment experience, just what what you did and, and sure. what it was like.
1: I was a public affairs officer for a logistics unit. So, the Marines were responsible for Ambar Province. And in that, you have ground, combat unit, infantry guys, uh, artillerymen, etc., You have air capabilities, and then you have the logisticians do everything from, you know, making sure people have food and fuel to mail and medical services. And so that was my unit. Uh, And so, you know, I I help reporters move in and out of uh, the, the area, help them get out to units. I had a group of Marines who worked for me who wrote stories and took photographs and video mostly for the base paper back home. But also, we would sort of uh, arrange interviews with hometown newspapers that somebody out, you know, out in Ambar could talk to, you know, the Youngstown Vindicator, uh, which is a great newspaper title, um, (laughs) uh, about, you know, what they were doing. Uh, And I was a kind of advisor to the general, and I had a kind of set of other kind of minor duties. I was aide de camp for a little bit uh, for the general. And so, what was interesting about it was I didn't just spend my time in one area or with one unit. I would kind of do everything from go out on a patrol with infantry guys to spend time with the doctors uh, and nurses and, and corpsmen to, you know, hang out with engineers or, you know, what have you. Uh, and so I ended up seeing a sort of pretty wide variety of of the components of, of the military. <laughs>
0: Can you talk a little bit about your experience when you returned home? I remember reading about reading a piece that you wrote about how it's so different to walk down uh, like a street in New York uh, once you come home.
1: Well, yeah. So I, you know, I didn't have like a particularly traumatic deployment, but you're in Ambar province was a very violent place at the time. You know, there was a a suicide truck bomb the first month that I was there. Uh, And, you know, we're uh, carrying severely injured men, women, and children into the doctors and, uh, you know, just sort of things of pretty important, <laughs> great moral import are happening all around you. Um, and you're aware of that. And, uh, in your, when you do it year long deployment, you get two weeks of leave in the middle of that. You will send you anywhere. Uh, I've I one Marine who was really big into base jumping, had his mother mail his base rig to Iraq so that he could then have the military send him to Switzerland so he could base jump the Eiger. I just wanted to go home and see my family and friends. Um, uh, Less exciting. Um, But it was bizarre, you know, because I'd I'd been in Anbar province about a week before that. I'd seen a Marine die in a combat hospital. And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm just walking down Madison Avenue. It's a beautiful day. There are people walking by in summer clothes, and it's just sort of zero Public sense that you're a nation at war. It's kind of like you know, what the hell is this place, and how do I reconcile these two worlds that are connected? I mean, this is this is the country that I'm fighting for. This is, you know, this is the the populace that is theoretically you know the boss, um, the the democratic public that is ultimately responsible for for what we're doing overseas. Um, and how do I s- kind of square these two things? And it kind of hit me hit me at the at the gut level. And I remember I was telling a war war photographer about this experience, and he said to me, he goes, Oh yeah yeah yeah, you never go straight to New York after a war zone. It's too weird.
2: <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of going off of that, and also your experiences in Iraq as a public affairs officer, you won the National Book Award in 2014 for your book Redeployment. Which if people aren't familiar is a collection of fictionalized short stories about the experiences of different people who are involved in the war in Iraq For those people who aren't familiar with your book we were wondering if you could kind of talk through the concept of redeployment and Your motivations for writing it. Sure.
1: So um, It's a book of short stories each one told from a different perspective, right? Uh, so You know, one story is told by an infantryman, one story is told by an engineer, one story is told by a guy who did psychological operations, one's told by a chaplain, there's a foreign service officer who tells the story, an adjutant, and uh, they take place in sort of different places at different times during the war. And I started writing the first story in that book uh, not long after I got back from Iraq, and I think the basic, um, basic impetus was sort of, you know, coming back and just saying like, what the hell was that? Right. Uh, and not necessarily, you know, what I had been through, but what other people had been through, what, what the experience meant overall, what coming home meant, because, you know, as I sort of mentioned, America felt strange. There seemed to be some sort of moral problem, (laughs) um, that I didn't quite know how to, how to disentangle. And just all these kind of like, odd memories, uh, that you had that you couldn't really place. And, and also, and I think this is common to a lot of, uh, soldiers coming back from war. You know, I had this sense of like, well, I'm back from war and I can tell people what's going on and they need to listen to me and et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like I had a, a right to pontificate. Um, but the funny thing about sort of writing fiction is when you write a story, you start sort of, you know, you take the things that trouble you, you take the things that confuse you, that that you take the things that are deeply morally important to you. And then you put them into a frame where you have to have characters who feel real and vivid, um, you know, sort of moving through that frame. And what ends up happening is the characters start to sort of just take a pickaxe to what you thought you knew about the world. And so as I was writing it, you know, it became less about, you know, this sort of whatever kind of message that I, that I had to impart to the reader, then. Uh, sort of inviting him into the skulls of these characters who are faced with decisions, right. Decisions of moral importance um, in a complex environment. And, you know, and then go on to live with those, those choices. And, and just to sort of play with a lot of the, kind of ideas and attitudes uh, of soldiers experiences that they have, the experiences they have coming home. And yeah, I mean, what else to say about it? It, it, it wasn't, you know, wasn't my attempt to come and say, this is what the Iraq war was like. It was, you know, to have 12 different narrators showing you, 12 radically different types of experience, uh, a different set of characters who, you know, if you put them in the room, they wouldn't agree with each other about much necessarily. But yet, you know, they all sort of have this purchase on this kind of broader national thing that concerns all of us.
0: And on that note, it's it's really important to get, to shed some light on these kind of experiences so everyday Americans know more about the experiences that our service members go through during war. But at the same time, is there a good way to describe that adjustment experience of coming home without too much playing into the PTSD drama stereotype that's already associated with veterans when they come back?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because it is weird coming back from a war sign, right? Um, even if you, you know, you're like me um, and your experience was was relatively mild, it is strange and it's not... I think part of the problem is that it often gets flattened to trauma, right? A discussion of trauma, right? We like to kind of medicalize the experience of return in some ways because it makes it safer, right? So if we take all the feelings that somebody might have coming back from a morally ambiguous war to a country that doesn't seem to be fully paying attention. If we take all of those feelings and decide that any of the negative feelings that arise are associated with a medical condition or with trauma, then it's just something that we have to cure, not something that sort of implicates us in a broader way. And so, I think for me, you know, it's funny. Some people will read the book as a book about PTSD, and none of the, none of the characters have PTSD, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's some characters who have clear symptoms of combat stress, right? Um, but uh, it's you know, the concerns uh, are much broader than that. You know, the, you know, one of the things I was talking with a, a veteran with with PTSD about this, and it was just like, you know, you look think about the war, like, are you are you mad? Are you uh, do you feel betrayed? Are you bitter about? some of the ways that policy has played out over the past two decades, right? And then it's like, well, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe you have PTSD and I hope that there's a pill that can cure that. And it's like, no, like, are you an American citizen who doesn't feel pissed off and bitter and just furious about the way that that, that uh, our military policy is, is, has played out over the past two decades? Like, if you don't feel that, well, then I hope they find a pill that could make you feel that
2: because um, it's not healthy. So you've written elsewhere that ultimately it's deeply important for service members to be able to feel that their sacrifices had a purpose. Um, And on the note of the Iraq war, there's kind of a consensus view building in America or like a widespread view, at least that the 2003 invasion of Iraq was a mistake. And even beyond that, many of the small victories or accomplishments of that war were then undone. Um, mm-hmm. In 2014 time period, with the rise of ISIS, around the same time you were publishing redeployment. So, how does a service member who fought in that war, based on your own experience and your uh, experiences talking with others, how does a uh, Iraq war veteran um, make sense of their own service in that war? <laughs>
1: yeah, I've written whole long essays about this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, people do it in different ways, but. Uh, you know, there's some people who are like, you know, I fought, you know, we fought for each other. There's some people who are sort of like, well, we did our part and, you know, uh, it's up to them now. Uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think either of those are fully sufficient. Right. Because, you know, you have a responsibility if you invade a nation, um, (laughs) to, 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 to not lead it into absolute chaos. Right. You, it's, it's, it's not really enough to say, well, you know, we tried, but, uh, uh, you know, the Iraqis screwed things up. It's, it's their fault, especially when a lot of the things that happened, pretty much all of, you know, most of the things that happened were predicted, uh, beforehand. Um, you know, it's not like some of the challenges that we faced that there weren't people saying that, that those were precisely the kinds of things that might happen. Uh, if we invaded Iraq, and then as far as you know, sort of we fought for each other. I think that that is true in some sense, right? Um, but <laughs> nobody nobody wants to go to war. well let's have a war so we could just fight for each other, right? That's not that's not that's not really how it works, or at least it's not how it should work. And I think if we as a country are not giving service members something broader than that. That's a serious problem. It's a national failing. It's not a failing at the level of the soldiers, right? the uh, The situation that we find ourselves in now is where we have this kind of strange impasse, where policymakers seem to be. My reading is policymakers seem to be afraid. If you pull out too much from these regions, things can really spiral into chaos, right? And they don't want to have something similar to what happened with the pullout in Iraq where you have the rise of ISIS, right? Where you have a kind of total collapse in areas that that, uh, we had thought were more secure. And at the same time, uh, and that's unpopular, right? When that happens, uh, the public doesn't like it. But at the same time, we don't want to have a debate about the war because these wars that have dragged on forever are not particularly popular. And the public doesn't have a lot of faith in the military when they tell them things are going well, for good reason. Uh, And so instead, what we've had is policymakers not being particularly transparent about the wars, right? This is not just something that happened in the Trump administration. I remember being an event with uh, Ambassador Susan Rice in 2015, Uh, and you know, there was, there were a lot of active duty military, there were generals and, and, uh, former chairman of the joint chiefs of staff was there. And there were a couple of severely wounded, wounded troops, right? Like guys missing legs, guys who had severe burns. And she was introducing the people at this event. And she said, you know, one of the proudest accomplishments in the Obama administration is ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. And somebody in the audience went, I was like, what? There are no video cameras here. Like who? Who are you lying to? Are you lying to the two, three, and four-star generals in the room who know that that's BS? Are you lying to the severely injured troops? Like what? Or are you just lying to yourself? And um, during that period, um, period when we were cutting non-military forms of assistance to Iraq, we were slowly ramping up uh, military assistance. Special, you know, military advisors, we weren't talking about it, we were claiming they weren't boots on the ground, we were claiming they weren't in combat, though they sometimes ended up in combat situations. And there was some weird tap dancing to pretend that that wasn't still being at war. And, you know, right now we have a situation where there's no transparency that, you know, the Pentagon is not giving out press briefings. And it's this sort of thing where, you know, the military seems to think that they have no obligation to be transparent about the war because it's not popular when they talk about it. And yet they still want – they get frustrated. You know, H.R. McMaster recently uh, was claiming that there's this war weariness narrative that's out in the public that is you know, hurting the troops, that we have a strategy that uh, is sustainable in Afghanistan and so on and so on. It's like, well, nobody's actually making the case for the war in Afghanistan. And you're not allowing us as a public access to what you're doing. And we're not having, you know, the military making a case for the strategy or explaining it to the American public. And I'm sorry, like, even if, even if you want to accept his arguments about the sustainability of, you know, the war in Afghanistan and the sort of cost benefit analysis of, of keeping troops there, if you're not selling it to the American public, then you don't get to have a war right this is a democracy and it's not entirely it's not really necessarily fully the military's fault right because ultimately it's our political civilian political leaders who are supposed to be making the case for the war right not the military itself that's a dangerous road to go down but in this kind of total vacuum of of any sort of serious discussion about the war among our le- elected representatives the military's response seems to be to cut down access, um, be less transparent, and then annoyed that that doesn't generate uh, public support for what they're doing. And I'm sorry, but that's not how a democracy is supposed to work,
0: so so you're saying that, like you're saying that service members are making sense of their purpose by saying, oh, i'm I'm doing my duty. I'm serving i'm I'm like doing my part, and I'm fighting for my brothers alongside me. But that's not enough when you don't have a serious national interest and investment and engagement with the war. And in part that's due to the fact that our civilian policymakers and our military are not allowing for a frank and open discussion about the war. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that everybody in this space kind of harps on is the fact that we haven't had a, uh, you know, authorization of military force. And, you know, I, well, I would think, you know, like the the the, the, the founders initially wanted us to have a, like, it like go up for a debate every two years to maintain a standing army, right? Right now, we don't even have a debate about having a standing war, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I think it would be reasonable to force the president every two years to go before Congress, articulate, you know, where we're killing people overseas, what the goal of the mission is, what the sort of... You know, desired end state is and what the benchmarks of success are so that we can actually hold them accountable, what it would take to resource the mission. And then I think everybody in Congress should freaking vote on it, right? And that seems like a very small thing to actually expect to have happen if we're going to have a long standing war. And yet nobody wants to do that because uh, I think there's a general sense that it's a hard, it would be a hard vote. It'd be a hard thing to articulate. Right now, our strategy is not particularly coherent. It's pretty obvious that when you look at what the generals say is necessary for long-term success versus what we're actually sort of resourcing in terms of the mission, it's not sufficient. And we kind of exist in this bizarre space where you have no public engagement about the war, but you can't actually – but it seems like it's impossible to draw things down because – We really don't like the consequences of that. And so, you know, one way or the other, there are going to be sort of hard decisions that have to be made. And we've set things up such that at every stage, people are making what are the, in the moment, the most politically easy choices to make. And that is no way to run a war.
2: And I mean, and the reason that it is politically easy to not, have those votes and not have those discussions is because there's no popular demand for those kinds of discussions. And I think a lot of people listen to read your stuff or listen to what you have to say and they think like, wow, I actually think that public engagement with the wars would be a good thing. And I I would like to know what I can do to kind of like build that sense of engagement myself, you know, just as a citizen. And what can you do? Yeah, like what what can a, one of our civilian classmates, a civilian listener of this podcast, what can they do to foster that sense of engagement?
1: Sure. I mean, for that, it depends on what particular aspect of engagement with wars you care about the most, right? Um, if if it's veterans issues, there's a host of different types of organizations uh, and causes that you can link yourself to and join and support. If it is... Um, you know I'll, I'll give you an example an organization that I've been involved with is veterans for American ideals it has veterans advocate on Capitol Hill every uh, every year for um, tying American policy more closely to the sorts of ideals we fought for uh, and one of the things that they've been focusing on is immigration refugee issue is, issues special immigrant visas for interpreters that sort of thing right that's you know, a fairly narrow aspect of, you know, this broader discussion, but it's, you know, one area where, uh, you know, I've sort of tried to do something and whatever it is that is sort of most resonant with you. Right. Because if you look at the problem as the entirety of the problem, it's, um, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed. Um, if you look at it as what is a specific issue within this, where it is possible to move the needle and where there are organizations and groups that are already doing good work, moving that needle, you'll find that there are a million ways in which you can make uh, impacts, right? More broadly, I think that sort of insisting upon, especially if you're a civilian, insisting upon your right to be engaged in Sip military national security discussions, and insisting both sort of to anybody you meet, but also especially with political figures that you know this is an area that we need to be more responsible, of, where we need to actually structure how we how we approach these issues in such a way that we force our elected leaders to take hard decisions. I think that's something that we should advocate for. Chicago, the windy city, the city of broad shoulders, the second city is complicated. Known for its legacies of segregation and political corruption, Chicago has a lot to grapple with. On Chicagoland, we bring you conversations with activists, journalists, politicians, and others
0: who are working to address these issues.
1: You can find Chicagoland wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: From University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts,
1: this is Chicagoland.
0: I think underlying this entire discussion is something you talked about in your Brookings essay on The Citizen Soldier you quote military ethicist Martin Cook saying there is an implicit moral contract between the nation and its soldiers could you kind of walk through what that term citizen soldier means as well as the term implicit moral contract
1: <laughs> at the beginning of the republic we thought that um uh you know citizen soldiers were going to be the greatest soldiers there could be right so that you know there were there are different two types of soldiers one was like a mercenary right base mercenaries who you know were just out there for the money and uh... <laughs> George, I, I have a bit in in uh, George Washington's message to his soldiers before the first major engagement of the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Long Island. Remember, officers and soldiers, that you are freemen. Remember how your courage and spirit have been despised, introduced by your cruel invaders, though they have found a dear experience at Boston, Charlestown, and other places, what a few brave men contending in their own land in the best of causes can do against base hirelings and mercenaries. Right? And this idea was like, these guys are just scum. They're just in for the money. They they're not inspired out of by patriotism and and moral values. And so you know when the fighting gets hot, they're going to flee. And you know we virtuous citizen soldiers are going to be victorious. And they just got the crap kicked out of them in that battle. And it's actually sort of uh, you know I was reading through uh, you know letters and diaries written by some of the the mercenaries right the Hessian mercenaries during that battle. And, you know, one of them, <laughs> one of the commanders is like, you know, among the prisoners, there's many so-called colonels, lieutenant colonels, majors, and other other officers. They're nothing but mechanics, tailors, shoemakers, uh, wig makers, barbers. Some of them were soundly beaten by our people who would by no means let such persons pass for officers, right? <laughs> and that uh, convinced Washington, that you really, there's a place for expertise, you know, like, like the moral sentiment is, is important, but you also need expertise. So we, we've kind of gone back and forth in this. And, and and for a long time, there's been this idea that there's something kind of wrong with a professional soldier, right? Uh, Ulysses S. Grant felt this way, right? That like, the men who signed up for the Civil War were great, but, you know, the other people who career soldiers, you know, not so much. You know, now we have an all-volunteer military. Right. And you do still have some of that sentiment sometime that, you know, oh, maybe people are only joining the military uh, because they've got no other uh, no other options in life. Uh, I was in an event with a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who basically he was said that to me. (laughs) Um, But for the most part, you know, the military has this huge support and approval right now. And it is kind of assumed that we are citizen soldiers, that we are uh, inspired by, you know, uh, devotion to to the Republic and, and to the set of ideals that we're fighting for. And yeah, so in that piece, I kind of go through the different conceptions of the soldier. And I think that it is an interesting place to be where you have very strongly operative the notion that you know, soldier in the modern military should be a citizen soldier. We'd like to consider them in that way. We'd like to consider that they are fighting for our ideals. That's part of the oath that we swear, right? We don't swear to, you know, a set of boundaries. We don't swear to a flag. We swear to defend the constitution, right? We are bound by a set of principles that we're, we're, we're swearing to. And And yet at the same time, it's an all-volunteer force, and it's very separate from American society as a whole. And it's sort of the numbers of people in the military, uh, you know, you're already talking about a fraction of a percentage of the American public, but it's geographically clustered as well. So, and it's increasingly a family business where if your parents were in the military, you're much more likely to be in the military. Uh, And so... You know, where I live in in New York, you know, every once in a while I'll run into somebody who's never met a modern veteran before, a veteran of the current wars, uh, or at least not knowingly so, uh, and that's just a very strange place to be in.
2: And so, back to the the implicit moral contract idea um, is that? Do you think that that's changing now? The mm-hmm. the contract between America and its soldiers,
1: right? So. You know, the contract should be like we fight the wars, we take, you know, the soldiers going to take on the immediate sort of physical burdens, mental burdens, um, uh, many of the kind of moral burdens of, of and, and spiritual burdens that one encounters uh, in a war zone. And then, you know, the American public is supposed to be responsive to the care of the returning veteran when they come home. Uh, which I think actually we've done a relatively good job at, right? Though so there's clearly you know areas uh, where we're not doing particularly well, um, but but more than that, provide effective oversight of the wars, right? If you if you consider going to war is one of the most morally momentous things that a nation can do, that is something that should engage the citizenry. It is one where we have an added o- obligation to be. Uh, to scrutinize the decisions of our policymakers. And in a weird way, uh, you know, what, what policymakers often want to do when we're at war is use the fact that we're at war to tell civilians that they that they are supposed to take a backseat, right? That they're not supposed to um, uh, intervene, that they should just listen to the generals, that, you know, uh, I, re- I remember uh, uh, General Kelly, uh, when back when he was still in the Marine Corps, before he was uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, chief of staff, giving a speech about how, you know, the chattering classes have never been in the arena, think they have a right to talk about it, and, and you know, you can't support the war, uh, it, support the troops and not support the war. Uh, and I think that kind of rhetoric is really poisonous, right? The idea that, you know, you're not supposed to have a rich Political debate back home about wars is noxious to me because it's that is precisely, you know, of all things that a nation's going to do, that's one of the areas where you're supposed to have the most robust debate. Because if you don't have that, then we as a nation are not going to be one providing our troops with an articulation of what we're doing and what our purpose is, two, we're not going to be scrutinizing the policymakers sufficiently, right, when they make mistakes, and three our sort of bowing out of that debate will make it clear to the soldier that we don't care, right? That it is not ultimately something that concerns us, right? If if I'm not allowed in the discussion about war, then that means I'm not really responsible for it, right? You can't have it both ways. You know, this point Lauren uh, DeJong Schulman made on on Twitter today uh, about McMaster's comments that I referenced earlier, she said, I'm mildly sympathetic to McMaster's opinion on the U.S. role in Afghanistan, but I would remind him that not a soul has stood before a podium and been honest about realistic U.S. objectives and sustainable successes there. This McMaster take is slightly related to a fear I have about the field. We've made national security faux-technocratic rather than politically informed. Thus, credentialed NETSEC views and action are correct, and worse, opposing positions are either unsaid or poorly supported. And, you know, war is... <laughs> It's, it's too important to be left to the, to to the generals and the politicians and, and the experts, right? Like it is, it is something that if you're going to do, the nation needs to be engaged in because if you don't, I mean, if you don't have, if you don't have a robust debate, what hope do you have of having good policy ultimately? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that you can see that very clearly as, you know, in, in what has happened, you know, we, we've ceased to make the case for what we've doing and so you you kind of have these sort of perpetual complaints you know when i was writing the 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 piece on the uh, for the atlantic on the plunging morale of of service members i had sort of assembled a list of quotes of senior leaders in the military the department of defense who were basically arguing that we were underfunding non-military tools of foreign power that were essential to military success and at a certain point like the paragraph that was just quotes of like secretaries of defense, chairman of the joint chiefs of staff, um, you know, CENTCOM commanders, commanders of the troops in Afghanistan, Iraq, like the list of just people who had said the same thing over the course of years, you know, was just like thousands of words worth of just, <laughs> you know,
0: yeah.
1: uh, complaining going into a void. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that uh, it's, and then more than that, it's not just about having good policy. It's about the fact that we're a democracy, right?
2: So we had two questions come in from uh, TYFYS guest and listener and um, patroness Saint Corey Shockey, who um, <laughs> w- wants to know what you're working on now uh, as far as your writing. Um, yeah, we'll do that one first. Sure.
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm a big fan of Corey Shockey. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, so I just turned in a novel about. Well, it it follows four main characters: two American, two Colombian. Uh, it starts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then sort of all the plot lines intersect in Colombia. So, uh, and then goes to another conflict. So um, the and it spans from about uh, two thousand two to the to two thousand sixteen. The basic idea of it is um, – I guess I could say it's about the U.S. role in, in Colombia, but more generally about how America projects power on the world. So Colombia is a kind of interesting country to look at. The So every ambassador that we've sent to Colombia post-9-11 has become involved with the war in Afghanistan in some way. Two ambassadors to Colombia have gone on immediately afterwards to be the ambassador to Afghanistan. One has gone on to be the ambassador to Pakistan. You have folks who have spent time in Afghanistan and going to Colombia, and it's a country where we've had, we've been, you know, it's been the largest recipient of Western of, of uh, military aid in the Western Hemisphere uh, since the end of the Clinton administration, and it's also considered a success case, right? So if you compare the you know sort of violent deaths in Colombia now versus 15 years ago, it's dramatically less, uh, and the FARC this. Communist uh, guerrilla group um, uh, recently signed a peace treaty with the government, and it you know is a counterinsurgency, counter narcotics fight with high value targeting, targeted assassination, and so kind of tactics and techniques and, and things that were uh, employed in Colombia would then try to be imported to Afghanistan, and at the same time, um, things that sort of were developed overseas would be, get imported back to columbia so for example there's a way of doing targeting right of uh, bringing people from different agencies all together in the same room variety of other things uh, that was employed in a smaller scale in the hunt for pablo escobar gets used in the balkans and then sort of famously in iraq uh, from 2004 2006 stanley McChrystal and um, flynn sort of bring it to an industrial scale so uh you know joint special operations command goes from doing about 12 raids a month in 2004 to doing about 250 a month in 2006. That's not cause you know, the Navy SEALs went to the gym and got real buff and you know, you <laughs> drank more protein shakes. It's because the whole way that we did sort of the, whole, the kind of system yeah. uh, behind that, right. Uh, changed. Right. And that system is, I think something that's hard to talk about because it's not necessarily a unit or a technology, uh, uh, but rather sort of a way in which all of those things get sort of uh, or tactic, but a way that all those things get brought together. Uh, and it's really important. You know, most people, when they think about sort of, you know, Navy SEALs or special operators, they think it's kind of cool, right? You know, like the Navy SEAL raid on bin Laden, most people, when they think about drones, think that they're kind of creepy, but from the perspective of the kind of targeting system, you know, that's just the flathead and Phillips head screwdriver right at the end of that system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that system can be brought to other countries, too. We aided the mm-hmm. Colombians in, in doing high-value targeting against leaders of the guerrilla groups. So anyway, uh, it, it was a way for me to talk about not just sort of Iraq and not just Afghanistan and not just Colombia, but the ways in which these conflicts are interconnected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the it's a novel. Uh, and that's the basic uh, idea of the novel is to sort of track characters moving through different conflicts in the way that those things combine in Colombia around the time that the peace treaty is being signed. So, you know, there's a, a journalist and she starts out in Afghanistan. There's a special American special forces guy. You meet him in Iraq. There's a Colombian special forces guy, uh, and then a kid who grows up in like a really poor uh, department in Colombia. And his town is subject to a massacre by the FARC, and then he ends up in the paramilitaries, and then sort of all those plot lines intersect in this mm-hmm. one little province in, in Colombia.
2: And can we expect it to come out?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, uh, I just turned it in, so okay. you know,
2: that's very cool. We'll be looking forward to it. And then on that no, note, way
1: more long-winded explanation than you wanted. No, it's okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it was super interesting. Um, and on that note we were wondering if you could tell us your top five essential war novels.
0: Also a question from Dr. Shockey.
1: Um, So Life and Fate by Vasily Grossman uh, would definitely be in there. It's a great book, Uh, sort of like a war and peace for the 20th century. Grossman was a journalist with the Red Army. He was at the Battle of Stalingrad. Then he writes this sort of magnificent novel that goes, you know, takes you to sort of scientists in Moscow, people in in the Battle of Stalingrad. Um, uh, there's a section on the um, Nazi death camps that is unbelievably intense and just phenomenal piece of work. I, you know, it's um, it's one of those novels like. You know, sort of people look at it and they're like, "Do I really want to read a 900-page Russian novel set in Stalinist Russia?" <sighs> yes, you do. It's like if you start just just start it. In a certain point, you will not be able to stop reading it. It is incredible. I mean, does that all have to be novels? Like I would think of David Jones and Princess, which is this uh, very it's an incredible modernist poem that gets you so just intensely close to the strangeness of the level of perception of somebody in, in World War I. Um, you know, uh, Jones said he wanted his poetry to be incarnational. Um, and uh, that is, it's, it's, it's not an easy read, but it is some of the most beautiful and strange and interesting poetry to come out of World War One. Another good World War I book that uh, people might not be so familiar with is Company K by William March, which is, it's just like these very short, you know. Each chapter is told by a different soldier in one company. You know, they're usually like a page or two, and uh, it's these just fantastic, strange psychological portraits of men at war. What else? What am I? At? I gave you three, right? Uh, I mean. Grant's memoirs, Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs. I'm sort of betraying the um, the novel category uh, a bit. Um, I mean, you know, there's a lot of great stuff. <laughs> you know, I thought Exit West was really good. Mohsin Hamid's uh, recent, uh, recent novel, you know, told from a sort of a civilian perspective, particularly the first half is a sort of civilian perspective as, as, um, a city is gradually being taken over by what seems to be like an ISIS like group. Uh, and I thought that was a really, really powerful, uh, powerful book.
0: The Marine Corps should get you to develop their annual reading list. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you guys. Great talking to you. And I really enjoy the podcast and, uh, uh, Thrilled to
2: be on yeah thanks we appreciate it you can find most of phil's published work on his website philclay.com yo <laughs> his name dude <laughs> <laughs> all right you can find most of phil's published work on his website philclay.com we especially recommend his essay on the citizen soldier for the brookings institution and his article on the plunging morale of American service members for the Atlantic.
0: Thanks for joining us today on Thank You for Your Service. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at tyfyspodcast. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released.
2: Thank You for Your Service is produced by Haziano, Ashwarya Kumar, and Mary Martha McClay. Our publisher is David Ravon. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation.
0: And I'm Nick Paraiso. See you next time. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, You want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China, both domestically and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening.